Hello, Gachi Mona listeners. I'm so excited to unlock this lit review from the first season of Lit Reviews, which I did with friend of the podcast and fellow Salvi Latina, Yesenia Medrano. We discussed Elena Salamanca's book of poetry called Family or Oblivion. We shared the joy that we felt in reading a Salvadorian woman author who writes in a way that forces you to sit, grapple with the text, and reflect before you come to any kind of conclusion about what she's trying to share with us. We shared our interpretations of Salamanca's descriptions of women living in San Salvador, and we meditated on how her works are both specific to the Salvadoran experience and universal. I hope that you all enjoy. If you wish that you had had access to this last year, then you can become a patron. For $5 a month, you get two exclusive lit reviews, and for $10 a month, you get new Gachimbona episodes every week. And I understand that these times are very difficult economically. And so if you want to become a patron in the future, but can't right now, another great way to help is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also following the podcast on Instagram at Radio Cachimbona, Twitter at Radio Cachimbona, and Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Cachimbona. I hope you all enjoy. Happy holidays! today to have Yesenia back on the podcast but this time for the lit review and I'm really excited because we are reading this anthology of poetry called Oh El Olvido Family or Oblivion and it's written by Elena Salamanca and she's a Salvadoran woman who was born in San Salvador in 1982 and Something well before we get into it, Yesenia, is there anything you want to say about this experience reading the book, or I don't know, anything you want to reveal about yourself that you feel like informs this conversation? Um, well, um, first, I'm also excited to be participating in this podcast and um, excited to be reading this book in particular. Um, as a Salvadoran, somebody who identifies as Salvadoran American. Um, mm-hmm. And because I did, I mean, I did take Spanish in high school and some classes in college. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in those classes, we definitely spent a lot of time reading Spanish literature. And I don't think I remember ever reading anything that was written by a Salvadoran author. So, I, I think it's... Well, um, really wait, exciting when you say to be Spanish doing. literature. Do you mean like from Spain? Not or just Spanish not language. Spanish oh, okay. language, but I know one of the classes was like 
um, Spanish literature. I'm pretty sure that was the name of it. And we were reading a lot of poetry. Mm. Yeah, I, I like I also took I took AP Spanish. Yeah, I took AP Spanish literature in high school and uh, also AP Spanish language. And I just remember that AP literature was just a bunch of authors, male authors from Spain. And, like, that's what we were taught Spanish, you know, like, Spanish language literature was. Like, that was the pinnacle of it. Um, and actually, this this conversation is really special to me because I think for a variety of reasons, you know, like, my, my parents left us a little pretty early on in their lives when they were in their early 20s. And also, you know, what they lived through in their early years was just a lot of poverty and then the Civil War. So I think they just, they weren't really immersed because they weren't middle class. They weren't really immersed in like, I don't know. And I think that, I think that also says a lot about classism and access to art, but I just don't think that that's something that they really learned about like Salvadorian literature or art. And I just remember this because one time for my AP, it was for my AP Spanish literature class, maybe, and or language, I, f I forget. But uh, they asked our teacher asked us to like ask our parents what their favorite, like what their favorite song or like genre of music from their that like your country specifically created. And when I asked my dad, he said, uh, I don't know, Salvadorians have no, didn't haven't didn't create their own genre of music or something. <laughs> and it's obviously it's not true. And, you know, I think that there's so much, you know, culture, specifically literature and music that doesn't that goes on and is written but isn't talked about and I feel like especially being a deportation defense lawyer like I only look at the Salvadorian American the Salvadorian American community the Salvadorian community and Salvadorian history through a lens of trauma and it was really nice to read this very obscure book <laughs> like actually like normally I actually like really hate things that are obscure like this but I think I just had a different experience reading it because it was written by a Salvadoran woman yeah I think I definitely agree that um well I just feel like we really have to like seek out um a lot of the Salvadoran culture because it's not as like talked about definitely not in school mm -hmm. not even when you're taking like Latin American like history classes Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I agree that that's like another reason why it makes it special for me to read this. Um, I think, so I just generally have a hard time understanding, um, well, I think actually recently I haven't gotten back into reading until recently. So, and I think mm -hmm. a lot of that had to do with law school. I just really Definitely. did not like reading after <laughs> After law school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so reading something that's not like a uh, legal text or um, I'm also an immigration attorney. Case. So, right. Yeah. So like something that's not about immigration law or like in the news, 
is definitely an exercise for my mind. So I really appreciate um, challenging myself to do that. And I also think that, I mean, I think that's, that's like part of the theme of this book is that it's like, or this, yeah, this book is um, that there are various meanings for um, kind of what she's writing about. And so mm-hmm. um, it, I, I had to read the poems two or three times before I had like some real thoughts about them. Yeah. Yeah. I had that same experience and it reminds me of this, this Argentinian filmmaker that I, whose movie I saw last year. I really, let me try and find who that person was. Hold on. Wait, whatever. Okay. While I search for her name, um, she like, I went to one of her movies and it was super, super slow and focused on like the really mundane details of like the very early colonial period in uh, South America. And um, at the, during the Q and A, I think somebody asked about the slowness of her films and why she does that. And she was like, you know, like in this age of, mass media we are constantly bombarded with so much information all at once and we're used to like being constantly stimulated all the time and i think she was like it's watching my movies is an exercise of patience and you know she was like i you like she was like when you watch my films your mind is gonna wander and she was like i want your mind to wander like i want you I want my film to do that for you to like make you think of new things and not just like, you know, sit there as a consumer and just consume like explosions and other entertaining things. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that's what this is too. Like, I feel like this book is in that same genre of thing. Like you really have to sit down with it. It's not really a book to read on a plane or like, on the beach I feel like it's something like when you're most serious is when you should pick up the book yes Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think definitely serious um I think also like I definitely well I mean even in the first poem uh it talks a lot about war so um (laughs) you definitely (laughs) want to be in a space where you can like process um some pretty like heavy heavy topics Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. definitely so do you want to start talking about the intro quote do you have that intro quote that i'm talking about by alvaro rivera larios yes okay yeah so the whole quote itself is also a lot to unpack, but what what caught me is this one specific phrase uh, that said, forever is the unceasing act of creation that is always in the process of becoming. And I, I like this idea because, well, I first, my first reaction was that I like that idea applied to love. Like when people say, forever like what does that really mean it's 
it's a commitment to constantly create and become your best self and like your best self in that relationship. And I also think that like this book is also an example of that, of an unceasing act of creation that's always in the process of becoming, because I think that these poems can mean different things to different people, depending on what their experiences are. Like, I think we probably read it with a certain lens. Um, but I think like we could read it later on in our lives and it would, it might bring different things to us. What do you think? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, that like, I don't know. I think that sounds like, I definitely agree with that summary. Um, I think, so I really appreciate that I've had the privilege to, like, go back to El Salvador and, mm -hmm. or, like, visit as an adult mm -hmm. where I can remember things and, like, learn a lot about the history. Mm -hmm. And so if I didn't have that experience, um, I don't know, first of all, I don't know where I would have gotten that information from or, like, any information about uh, the history of El Salvador without, like, Googling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess with like that lens in mind, I feel like at least I can appreciate, um, I mean, I guess just like going back to the fact that like, it feels really heavy and mm -hmm. I feel like I can better appreciate that knowing kind of like more of the history and, and especially um, like the the history of the the Civil War. Mhm, mm mhm. Mm yeah, that's definitely really important context to this work. She was born in 1982, and so her whole life has kind of seen the beginnings of the Civil War up until now, which is a totally different situation, but has kind of evolved from a lot of that earlier violence. So I was kind of trying to figure out why she's so hard to read at first. And that same quote at the beginning just said, described her work in general, saying that she travels from one genre to another, merging and blending their borders, which I think is really beautiful, but also might be why it's different to understand, why it's hard to understand. Because I also like read a bit further than what we had talked about discussing and the I see what he means about genre bending because it's like set up like prose but still feels like poetry and I think it just takes a while to register especially like you're saying like the stuff that we read is so it's so I don't even know how to explain it it's it feels like it's always it's, well, the same thing. It's always the same format, just different facts. <laughs> right. And like, you know, like we we could never like write a poem as a, as a brief <laughs> for why somebody should stay. And I think uh, I think that was the reason for me that sometimes it was like I had to read something a few times before I understood what she was trying to or maybe trying to say. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> like, for example, the news, it's, like, written to be, like you were saying, like, consumed instantly and, like, just get the headlines, learn it as fast as you can. Um, and this really does challenge you to, like, reflect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also think that, I mean... I think a lot of what was ambiguous for me too was um, even the like knowing that she grew up in El Salvador. It's like it's not like she's naming it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so she's like she's talking about these characters and this city mm-hmm. and these places and these smells, but everything is kind of nameless. Mm-hmm. So it's. I mean, it definitely, like, leaves it up to the reader to have their own interpretation. But I also think that that makes it, like, challenging to understand. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I it reminds me of that, uh, how she explained filigrees. Uh, like, the her first poem is this explanation it's filigranas or filigrees and she the fourth she gives these definitions and the fourth one is what can be read in between the lines if a watermark filigree is visible when held up to the light a filigree in this case is the indentation or impression that written words leave on the page underneath an imprint on antique paper that is as of yet unnoticed. These writings are my filigrees. Like when she says that a filigree is something that you see when you hold up to the light, that to me is like, it's something that you only see when you're in a certain context. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that even though like we know her personal context, like she did she was born in San Salvador and she has lived through the civil war and like, she's likely talking about these things. I think this book can be read and understood in different ways by people who have had different experiences. And I think she purposely did that. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, also I think it, it, it's, kind of like yeah like what you're saying is like you are going to find you're going to find interpretation if you're like actually looking for it um and I think like especially the second to the last line of that first um poem where she says an imprint on antique paper that is as of yet unnoticed Mm -hmm. like I think that also goes to like the ambiguousness of the the characters and just like generally mm-hmm. um and um like invisibility of women mm. and the way she talks about them throughout mm. um the poems too mm. yeah i think that makes sense because i because in a strange way I, I also kind of read that like yes they're unnoticed but also I, there's still like the filigrees still exist even if they're not seen Mm 
And I also see there being so much potential. Like, you can still hold this up to the light and see it. And I think that maybe she would appreciate that dual reading. Like, yes, this is about, like, yes, women are invisible, but also at the end of the day, like, the filigree still exists and, like, our multiple dimensions still exist. It's just the person who's observing has to see them. Right. Yeah. Telling society to look harder. Yes, yeah. To be, to act right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so just backing up a little bit, uh, the dedication is to her grandmother. It says, uh, Rosa Elena, Elena, Elenita, mi abuela, Rosa Elena Martinez, 1931-2017. So I also thought this was another example of how, like, she's actually so aware of the multidimensionality of women, and she... You know, like, her grandmother wasn't just her abuela. She was Rosa, Rosa Elena, Elenita, right? Like, and that to me is like, like, she she means different things to different people. And, and she means different, you know, she plays different roles within herself. And I just really appreciated that being written by a Salvadoran woman because in my own personal experience, my the women in my family hold these very patriarchal <laughs> views about women's role in a, a nuclear family unit and uh like in many ways my mom and my grandma feel like raising children is like their sole task on earth and you know apart from tending to the home and providing for your family like there's nothing else to do or care about I know that sounds extreme, but that's that's the situation, actually. So, yeah, I, I just, I appreciated that. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, my grandma, who lives in El Salvador, is also named Rosa. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> that's um, <laughs> what I thought about. Yeah. And I guess, like, I mean, thinking more about, like, um, I mean, obviously, this is like my interpretation of her experience, mm-hmm. of her lived experience, but mm-hmm. it's oh, yeah, just, I'm also totally projecting my own experience, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, like everyone, so she lives, she's she lives in San Salvador, um, in this colonia, and everyone knows her as Nina Rosa, Nina mm-hmm. Rosa, because she's very tiny and oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's. I mean, I think it's interesting because it's like I didn't meet her as an adult until I was 18. So mm-hmm. I went from being a baby to 18 and and I'm the first grandchild on her. I'm her first grandchild. So like she didn't really she um, she has two sons and my dad was the first one to have kids. And so she because I grew up in Arizona um and we didn't see her until I turned 18. Like she never grew up with, or she never, um, like I just didn't really experience her as a grandma, like Mm -hmm. physically present in my life. Mm -hmm. And like people in the colonia, like know that she has family in the United States, 
but it's just kind of like she's always been there by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, just like wow. Nina, Nina Rosa. Um, what a strong woman. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's just, it's, I was just thinking about like how, how the community views her mm-hmm. um, as, and like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess I would want, I would want to know more about how she views her role as a mother. Like I know obviously she's mm-hmm. really, really proud of my dad who made it to the United States and like, you know, mm-hmm. um, is like able to send her money and like take mm-hmm. care of her. Um, but like how much of their lives have they been separated and like, mm-hmm. what is that? What is that relationship actually? Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's, those are very abstract thoughts. <laughs> um, but I think just no, like actually. trying to tie it to like, um, like women's roles and, like being mm-hmm. multidimensional and kind of like mm-hmm. how she, until recently, well, like very early on, she stopped having like that physical relationship with her son, like physical caring relationship with her son when he left the house mm-hmm. to come to the United States and how like very, it's, it's only been like in the last like decade that she's met me as an adult and, like talk to my sisters now on the phone mm-hmm. um, and like been a grandmother. Mm. Wow. No, and I don't think that's abstract. I think that's rooted, like that experience of family separation, I think is almost parallel to migration itself, especially from Latin America to North you know, the United States because of border militarization, like it, once you come into the U S if you are undocumented, it's impossible to leave or it's just very difficult to leave because every time you cross without authorization, it's a life risking endeavor so, no, I feel like it makes so much sense that, like, you would have that complicated relationship. Right. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, just the way that, I mean, this book isn't really talking about migration, but, like, the way that migration changes, um, like, our, yeah, fa- familial relationships and roles I guess in society like who who that makes us yeah what our identity is based Mm -hmm. on migration history Mm -hmm. so I don't know have you ever read Gertrude Stein Mm, maybe a long time ago yeah, like, I also only vaguely remember what it was about. I just remember that I was super confused when I was reading it. And then I remember being in seminar and this person was like, like, I think our professor was like, oh, general reactions. And this person was like, I don't, I mean, I just don't know what to say. Gertrude Stein's so difficult to understand. Like, 
I don't know. It's the kind of thing like when my mom was in college, her and her friends dropped acid and would read Gertrude Stein, Gertrude Stein oh, out loud to each other. <laughs> right? And, I, and I, was, I was like, yeah, actually, it kind of that makes sense. <laughs> but like, you know, again, going back to like how media has historically portrayed Salvador, and especially like historically yes but also like in this very particular historical moment where trump has tried and has publicly essentialized central americans so much you know calling us criminals and gang members and you know quote quote unquote we don't believe in those (laughs) arbitrary labels that are being imposed by him but it's just really nice to be able to step away from that and and like to know that you know white people don't have a monopoly on pondering life's larger questions and like or just writing something you know writing a thing so that people sit with it you know art for the sake of art i think is something really beautiful to be able to experience from a salvadoran woman Yes. <laughs> My cat is getting in the way of the recording. <laughs> okay. Um, so the first, the second, I don't know if you count that first definition of the poem or not, but the first or second poem, depending on your definition, is called Sangre. And the first, for, clause really struck me it said in this city constructed i'll just read the whole sentence because it'll be easier to understand in this city constructed to live without emotion only that which can be butchered has value and that first clause both of them struck me but the first clause really struck me uh like what does that mean I haven't visited San Salvador. So my family lived, like, used to live in San Salvador, and that's where my grandma's house is, and that's where I would go when I was a kid. And so I, but I actually don't remember the city grid or, like, what it was like. So I can't say if, like, what she's referring to is something architectural in the city, or is she talking about the trauma? Like, like there has been so much trauma that there's this numbness, like... There's a numbness to emotion. I, I don't know. What did you think when you read that? Yeah, I I definitely think that that like first sentence is um, it's really deep. And I like the last time I was in El Salvador was nine years ago. So um, yeah. I don't know what it looks like now. Um, but I definitely think that my mind first went to kind of like the trauma and mm-hmm. how like the war really impacted the city and like what's, I mean, I think it, it kind of like what we were saying earlier is that like these poems are kind of like ev- ever evolving and like even now it's kind of still like portrayed as a war zone and we know that, like, there's so many unhealed wounds since the war. Yeah. And because of the way that 
El Salvador is still portrayed now and like the gang violence and um, just like really terrible rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's definitely where my mind went first. Yeah. Also, that second part, only that which can be butchered has value, was really disturbing. But because it made me think about these, the Central American youth that are really vulnerable to gangs and then when they're migrating to cartels, like, uh, it's, they, it's like these kids have been left to die or left to live in poverty for the rest of their lives by their government, by the U.S. government, and you know, these larger structures are just kind of indifferent to their existence, but they start to matter when to these cartels, they can traffic drugs across the border or they start to matter when like these kids can join the gang and traffic drugs for them wherever else. And, uh, it's, it's so horrifying to think that that is the reality that some of these kids face that, you know, in, in the logic of capitalist imperialism, like these kids only have value when they can be trafficked or as she says, butchered. I definitely agree. I think, yeah, it makes, I don't know. I feel really sad reading it over again. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a really dark poem, like you were saying, because it goes on to say, the smell of blood, the blood of the dead. There are those that have never smelled a body, not yet. Like her, the generals, despite being murderers, never got stained with blood. That's what vexed her in a war. Someone was always killed. And heroes like the generals kill, if not thousands, then at least many. Like the heroes of a tragedy in the battles she read about in books. I think also, so um, the theme of like blood is mm-hmm. in at least two of the poems in this section, or in this chapter. And I think the way that she weaves it into this poem is also really... Um, it. I guess the way she weaves it in almost makes it emotionless too, because she goes from like talking about blood in the sense of like bodies and then to like animals. And then at the end, right. Like the smell, I guess of like a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, like, yeah. yeah at the end, like all this blood for a soup. Mm. yeah so I think it's um, I don't know I feel like the way that she weaves it into in her words um, like really does kind of demonstrate how like numb numb you become to like violence and and blood yeah to me, that also signals like how traumatizing it is to have to live in a war zone. Like, I think this is kind of the internal. This does reflect the internal process. In from what my mom has told me, this does seem to reflect that experience because 
it's like there's this blood, this blood, it's awful. The whole marketplace reeks, you know, and it's something that exists all across the city. But at the end of the day, like you still need to go to the market and buy your things and make your soup. And that's, yeah, that's how I understood that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think it is like, like developing a numbness where, yeah, like these are just like the things that you see on a daily basis when you're like living in so much trauma and then like you're saying, like at the end of the day, you still have to like just do things to like survive and Mm -hmm. kind of like walk through it. Like, Oh, well this is what I'm experiencing every day. So. Right. Also, uh, uh, this has been a consistent theme in the lit review, but I just always think translation is so interesting and, the English version says, all this blood for a soup, she tightened her hold on the package of viscera, all this blood for a city. And then the Spanish version says, tanta sangre para una sopa, tanta sangre para una ciudad. Tanta and all to me is different. Like to me, tanta actually translates to so much blood. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure that that's like a substantive difference, but I just think it's interesting how even the best efforts at translation still sometimes fall short. Right. Okay, it, so I think it also is kind of like um, just because there's so many meanings in the poems, like definitely if they if they were originally written in Spanish. It's like, how do you capture the multiple meanings when you translate something written in another language? Yeah, that's always why I like to point it out, because I'm not sure we always realize how actually, like, our culture is recorded through language. Like, there's certain cultural meanings, you know, we, as in our cultural context, create certain words. And so, you know, I think even, like, expert translators have a really difficult task and sometimes I just don't think you can get 100% there you know like you just need to know the other language to really fully be able to understand the concept so the flower pot poem was interesting to me because of how it ended um it's really short it's a word in a pot a flower a plant to store words to deposit those words in a flower pot root plant graft flower at home plants grow wild invasive as ancient beasts with thousands of tentacles petals and pistols in the apartment the garden was a controlled space It was possible to understand the growth, the veracity to live, to prune, a plant in a pot, root, one word, captive. The ending threw me off because I thought it was describing the nice process of a plant growing. And then in the end, it was just a reminder, like, well, actually, that plant is just prisoner. 
and growing only according to the dictates of the person who's pruning the plant. And then I got sad. (laughs) (laughs) But I actually don't take care of any plants, so I don't feel like I'm holding anybody captive. I might be holding my cats captive. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, that's not true. My second cat, like, actually begged to be adopted. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Did Did I tell you that story? I think, yes, I think you did. Yeah. It's neither here nor there. (laughs) But for the record. I also, about this poem, so as soon as she says, at home, plants grow wild, I just automatically, like, my mind just automatically went to, like, um, just, like, being in El Salvador and, like, um, in like the country mm-hmm. and like how beautiful the plants grow wild. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and then it says in the apartment. So mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, like w- what does she mean when she say at, she says at home and what's in the apartment, like where, right. like mm-hmm. in the apartment in the U S in the apartment in El Salvador. Right. Like who is the, who's the plant and who's the flower because Mm -hmm. it's like written from the perspective of a wild plant that would have just been growing in the countryside. Right. And then it's like in the apartment. Yeah. I know it. Yeah. So it brings up questions of agency too. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I didn't have anything to say about white cat. (laughs) So I I wanted to go stop it. I wanted to talk about letter. Um, so <laughs> I like the line on page 24 where she says, romantic men seek anemic women. Yes. The, fant- <laughs> the fantasy of protection, the fantasy above all of a woman who, despite a foregone history, hides tenderness in the nest of her hair. What would romantics do without the bird? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I just really like this because I thought that was so perfect. Like, that's literally how every rom-com is framed, right? Like, yes. this man that has the, like, secret to how this woman can live a happy life. And how so many cis straight men approach, try and approach women in a one-dimensional way and, like... You know, try and have this one-dimensional relationship of, like, I protect you. Yes, and just, like, seek an anemic woman. Like, like seeking out, uh, like, a weak woman, I think is, like, how I interpreted that. Or, like, a woman in distress, I guess. 